just checking that I'm working and looks like I sort of am. Righto. Morning, everyone. Uh, so we continue our series of Unblemished this morning. And uh, we're looking at, uh, as was read by Chelsea earlier, um, we're reading uh, Malachi chapter 2, 17, 3 to 3, verse 6, and I'll go through uh, why we're starting it at that point in a moment. Our world is unjust. If you look around you, you'll see it. Our world needs a judge to come. People are liars, and they get away with it for too long. Or perhaps if we go to the sporting arena, we have Lance Armstrong. He won the Tour de France seven times before the biggest doping scandal in cycling history was eventually uncovered. If we turn to the political sphere, we find uh, someone like Adolf Hitler. Why was it that he was allowed to rise to power? Why did there need to be so many deaths attributed to him before his reign ended? Or what about in Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe? He reigned for 37 years, with the latter years in particular marked by violence, oppression, economic ruin for the nation. How long, O oh Lord, people cry out, will injustice reign? Um, apparently in uh, Mexico, 90%, I was reading uh, this week, of murders go unsolved. And the article I was reading uh, this statistic in was actually an article about poverty. And it was talking about the cause of poverty not simply being a lack of money. It's, and I quote, the, the assaults, the slap across the face, the rape, the abuse by police, and the extortion. Closer to home, uh, when I was young, I remember my brother and I being uh, put into our bedroom. Uh, because one person had done the wrong thing. That one person wasn't me. <laughs> and uh, I knew that we weren't allowed to go anywhere until the person admitted to it. So I admitted to it. And my brother got to go free and I had to stay in my room. My brother reminded me of that recently. I think it's very, very unjust. I didn't think it appropriate to put his image up there, though. <laughs> But that's where this passage starts. Um, but I just want to explain a little bit why we're starting at 2.17. It's not really the logical place to start a passage. Normally, you'd start at the start of a, a chapter. Malachi is split into six different speeches. And this is the fourth of those speeches. But this, this speech appears to start at 2.17. And it's 3.1 that we actually start to get the answer to it. And unless we read 2.17, we don't actually have the question that's being answered. I don't know if you know much about how uh, chapters were put into the Bible. Um, they sort of appeared around the 13th century or were completed by then. Um, there is a story going around that someone was sitting on a bumpy road and they just sort of were writing in chapters pretty randomly. And I guess when you come to a, a, um, a segment like this, uh, there seems to be a semblance of truth to that. You see, chapters aren't part of the original, um, and in times like this, we almost need to disregard them completely because they can be a false sign to us about what it is 
uh, we're actually reading. Interestingly, the Hebrew Bible starts chapter 3 at the point that the uh, English Bible does in 2.17. So everything's sort of pushed down a bit. So the Hebrew Bible appears to get it right here, but uh, the English Bible goes off um, what's called the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uh, which gets it wrong. So this speech starts with the people's complaint. They believe that God is in unjust. And it says, whoops, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or they say, where is the God of justice? So it appears there's people that are just doing whatever they want, they're pleasing themselves, and from the people's perspective, this post-exilic community's perspective, they're seeing that they're prospering, and, well, is God looking after us? Why is he not coming? Why is he not a God of justice like he was in the past? These people, it would appear, are living in difficult economic times. We know that because a little bit later uh, in the chapter, we're told about the pests that are devouring their crops. And if the pests are devouring their crops, they're struggling in order to get an income, in order to uh, live out what they need to do each day. But it's a little bit confusing because there's prosperity at the time. So Darius was the king of Persia at the time, and when he was king, there was pretty good prosperity amongst the groups. Um, some of you may know that under the Babylonians, uh, everything was centralised, so people were um, brought in to be uh, in a central um, spot because the Babylonians thought that they are best protected there. When the Persians came in, they said, no, we want people spread out, we want people living as they want to be living, uh, because then they're happy, then they're not going to revolt against us, but also if they're at the perimeter of the empire, then they're a better able to protect things around. And it seems that um, this edict that went out to allow people to do that was bringing about prosperity. And this community, though, this God-fearing community, wasn't finding that for themselves. They looked around and it was all right for other people, though. And in this situation, the question that they start to ask is, how has God allowed this to happen? Why the injustices? And then they say this, has God changed? Is he different to who he was in the past? And so, when we approach this passage, we approach it with these two central questions. And I'll say them again. How has God allowed this to happen? Why these injustices? And has God changed? Well, in one sense, they're not really questions, are they? They're actually more accusations against God. God, you have changed. God, you are responsible for the mess that I'm in. God, you are responsible because you haven't acted on all these injustices that are around. God, you are responsible for my circumstances. God, you are responsible for my suffering. And that is the point at which we meet this post-exilic community. See, as a result of these questions, they start saying, well, 
maybe I'm not better off following God. They're questioning the, the point of wholehearted worship. Why would they want to be what we've called an unblemished community if God isn't working for them anyway, if God is not acting? What's the point of it all? And into that situation, we get this response from God starting at 3.1. God will act. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. I'll just keep going. Um, Now, as Christians, we know that um, the messenger to come was John the Baptist. Uh, Because we read in the New Testament that he prepared the way for the Lord. And we know that his uh, baptism was a baptism of repentance, to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, Jesus sort of endorsed this because he, he said John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Now, even though John denied this, and I guess he denied it because he's not actually John the Baptist, he comes in the spirit and the power of John the Baptist, as we read in Luke 1.17. Um, but he's Elijah in the sense that he is preparing the way for God to come. And you sort of read this part and you think, well, did Malachi actually know that? Did he know that um, there was someone coming before Jesus like John the Baptist who would prepare the way, who would be the messenger? I don't think so. But there's something very interesting about the word used for messenger here. The word used for messenger is exactly the same word as the word used for Malachi, the prophet's name. So in a sense, the message that Malachi brings to this community, this community that's struggling with all the oppression uh, that's around them, is that he is the messenger. He is preparing the way. The Lord is coming and he embodies the message that has to go beforehand. It is no wonder then that this book of Malachi is placed right at the end of the Old Testament. The message of Malachi is critically important if we're to understand what is to come, the Gospels to come. So that's what we're trying to discover. What is this message of Malachi? And the message is found in the next verse. It says, Then suddenly... The Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come. And earlier in the week when I read this passage, I thought, I've struck gold. This is fantastic. I got this one where I can talk about God's grace to the people. You see, particularly Cam in previous weeks has had to labour through the constant, constant, constant failings of this community. God had showed love to them, but they didn't respond. God had been a father to them, and they haven't shown him honour and respect. And as a result, God has had to threaten the leaders with curses rather than blessings. And as I was sitting over the weeks and listening to um, Cam's sermons, I'm thinking... Where's the solution? And it's here that we have the solution. It's here that we have the answer. 
You see, the failure of the people isn't the final word because God's grace will prevail. He will act. He will act to bring about true restoration of the temple. Once again, sacrifices will be pleasing to God, which means God's favour is again on the people. You see, when God acts, he will fully be with his people. He will be their God. The very purpose of the temple in the first place was not just so that the people could offer sacrifices, it was so that God's presence could be among them. This is critically important. Our relationship with God is not dependent on our success or failure. It's dependent on God. It's dependent on God's grace. That's why we sing about God's grace so much, because it is all his grace. It is his action, it is not ours. God is faithful even when we are not. The message of Malachi couldn't be more relevant for us today. We too have constant failures. We promise too much, we deliver too little. Yet in the story of God, he acts and he amazingly still uses us. We, or I know this is one for me, I constantly burn myself out trying harder and harder. Maybe you try harder and harder to be a people pleaser. Maybe just to justify yourself. But in doing so, we forget that we are reliant upon God for all things, not on ourselves. Yet in the story of God, he still acts. He still graces us with his presence and he continues to use us. And I think of it like this. We are constantly acting like ships without a rudder. We are willingly tossed to and fro by the winds of life. Knowing that the rudder leads us straight, we continue to reject it. In fact, we deliberately raise the rudder up and look instead for the next wind that excites us. But in the winds of life, God still acts. He narrows the channel and leads us safe to shore. So the message of Malachi tells us that despite our failures, God still acts. And at this point, you would think it, well, we've probably reached our destination already, haven't we? God acts, there's nothing more to be said. Uh, sermon over. Uh, not quite. You see, should the message end there, it leaves something unanswered. The question at the beginning, has God changed and why hasn't he acted yet? Remember, if we put ourselves back in the time of Malachi, this is sometime after 515 BC when the temple was completed, but it's before the time of Christ. God has not yet acted in Christ. He was... Um, he has sent the Elijah, or in this case Malachi, meaning messenger, uh, to announce that the Lord will come, but why the delay? 
And I think it may be the same question for us here today. Why the delay, God? Why is it that God has not yet acted to free me from my circumstances? Why has God not acted to end all wickedness and all deception, all injustice in the world? Why doesn't he get rid of the thieves and the liars and the murderers? Why does the world appear to prosper? And we, we who come to church week after week, why doesn't he prosper us? Maybe, God, maybe you don't care. Or maybe you're not even there. Maybe God has changed. If you can feel that moment, that longing for God to act, that longing to break free from your circumstances or have God just break into your circumstances to do something about it, that cry out to God that He needs to act and He needs to act now, if you feel that, then you get what this passage is about. You get the frustration of the people. And that's why this post-exilic community had become half-hearted. They thought, eh, eh, why bother? Is the sacrifice of bulls and goats really necessary? Why bother if we're in a time of economic hardship? Therefore, I won't give up my best to God. I'll bring my least. He is not really worth it. And why bother when my life feels so busy that I, I just want to rest? Why bother when I have so many other important things to do in my life? And why bother when people around me hurl insults and they're thieves and they're liars, yet they continue to prosper at my expense? I'm sure some of you would have liked to have stayed home today. Wouldn't change much, would it? If you didn't come to church today, why bother? Now, this post-exilic community hadn't just thought this. They'd acted on it. They weren't bothered anymore. They didn't give their best to God. They had started to live as, God, as if God was not coming to judge. They looked at the nations around them and saw that they prospered in their unbelief. They didn't have economic hardships. They didn't waste time coming to worship. They lived for the moment, and well, if it's good enough for the goose, it's good enough for the gander. And so their lives started to change. Lust, pornography, adultery. Well, if there's no judgment, why not? What about little lies? Well, it's not really harming anyone, is it? Everyone does it anyway. Broken promises? Well, no one is completely honest anyway. What about getting the last cent out of everyone? Social injustices? Well, that's how the others around us have prospered. We need to be doing the same. What about out of the government? A few liars on their tax? 
Well, the government doesn't really use the money well anyway, do they? Nor the temple, for that matter. I can use it better. I'm more responsible than them. What about if it's a widow or an orphan, a visitor, an immigrant? Do you try to get every last cent out of them? Well, they, they, you know, they probably deserve it. They deserve their circumstances. And they're not my responsibility anyway, are they? Two and a half thousand years may have passed, but it's no different for us. Worship God? Nah, that's stupid. I've got better things to do on a Sunday. Commit to house church? No, 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 my life's busy enough. I just can't pack anything else in. Why would I waste my time doing that when I don't really see any results from it? Giving money to the church, the poor, the oppressed? Well, life's tough. I, I need that money. What about looking out for the hungry, the sick, the disadvantaged. Well, I've got problems of my own, you know. I've got to deal with them. Pray. Read the Bible. Well, it's not making a difference anyway. God's not acting. In no uncertain terms, God reminds this community that these things do make a difference. The messenger preparing the way for the Lord reminds them that if they don't turn and repent, they too will come under judgment. And as uh, Chelsea read the um, passage this morning, you sort of sit there and you think, there's a lot, of, a lot of judgment in this. And it's actually unexpected what happens. In their, you know, They consider themselves the faithful community and God should be judging everyone else. And he says, well, if I judge, you're going to be judged. It says, so I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, the adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and, and uh, fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. So the question that the community were asking why has God not come to judge, is answered in the most unexpected way. I will come to judge and I will judge you. It's not the answer they wanted to, wanted to hear. I will judge you, says the Lord. So what's the response to this? They need to live now knowing that these things matter. They need to live now knowing that Judgment will come. Start living now for not the immediate sensory fulfillment like other people around them were doing. Don't live for the moment anymore. Don't think if it's good enough for the goose, it's good enough for the gander. Don't live your life for the moment, for ultimately such acts will come under God's judgment. Unfortunately, if you pick up a Bible, most of, your, um, most of the passage ends here. Um, I find that a bit concerning. There's a um, sort of a heading for the next section. Not all Bibles, but some. So this is the end of verse 5. Um, and I guess if you stop there, the message is God will come to judge. He will come to judge you. So live for the time to come and not for the moment. 
But just like the beginning was sort of incorrect where it's placed in our English Bible, so too I think the ending is incorrect here. The message that you come under God's judgment is kind of true, but remember our judgment is in Christ. But it's important to know that this isn't the final word. There is something else that the prophet has to say into this situation. And as we read on, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. This, I believe, is firmly in response to the opening question, has God changed? So obviously this section is important. Why hasn't God not come in judgment? And the response is, no, the Lord does not change. He will come in judgment. And so we're still going, so why has he not come yet? Why has he not freed us from our circumstances? And finally, we get the answer. Finally, we get this. So you, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, the descendants of Judah, this post-exilic community, this community in Mount Gambia, the reason that God's judgment has not come is so that you are not destroyed. You see, God is a merciful God. He is allowing people time to repent. And he sends a messenger before him to say, say, repent, the time for judgment is coming. You see, when the Lord comes again, there'll be no time anymore. There's no time to collect your belongings. The time has passed. There's no time to urge loved ones and friends to repent. That time has passed. No time to activate your bushfire survival plan and evacuate before the fire comes, for the consuming fire is now all around you. The time for that has passed. There will be no more time to repent. He will come swiftly to judge the living and the dead. And living two and a half thousand years after Malachi, The messenger preparing the way for the Lord has the same message for us. We might live in a time when Christ has already come, but we also live in a time where we're waiting for that to be seen by sight, and that's when the second coming comes. At the moment, by God's mercy, there is still time to repent. There is still time to dial heaven and get our evacuation plan. There is still time to urge loved ones and friends to repent, but the time is ticking. When he comes, he will come swiftly and the time will be up. For now, God has not come in judgment and the wicked appear to get away with all sorts of injustice but so do we. Now is the time to repent. And for that we praise our God because he is a merciful God. And so the two questions that we had at the start, has God changed? No, God hasn't changed. He will still come in judgment. He is still a righteous God. And why has God not yet come? Why has he not come to judge? Because he is a merciful God and he allows us time to repent. Amen.
Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are a God of grace, a God who acts, a God who in Christ we have everything paid for us. It doesn't depend on us. It depends all on God's grace. But Lord, we need to turn back to you. We need to be wholehearted in worship. We need to repent and we need to realise that our time is running out. Our time is running out to tell loved ones. Our time is running out to tell friends of the goodness and the mercy of God. We praise you, O Father, even in the midst of our circumstances where we just wish you'd step in and release us from them. We praise you still because you are a God of mercy who allows this time of repentance. Help us to live not for the moment, but help us to live, O Lord, for eternity, knowing that you are the God of grace and you are the God of mercy. Amen.